Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monuments, the biggest buildings, the most fabulous creations were celebrated as wonders of the world. Unlike Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. These ancient wonders included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Great Pyramid of Giza, and the tremendous Lighthouse of Alexandria. Later, other magnificent sevens recognized the Great Wall of China, the Empire State Building, the Taj Mahal, and so on. Then there are the enduring wonders of the natural world, such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast, and the guest I'm asking today is the actor, comedian, voiceover artist and singer Michael Fenton Stevens. Michael's been acting and performing on stage, TV, radio and so on from as long ago as the early 1980s, when he was part of the hit Radio 4 comedy series Radioactive, along with Angus Deaton, Jeffrey Perkins, Philip Pope and Helen Atkinson Wood. He was one of the voices of Spitting Image and appeared in other big-name comedies such as Only Fools and Horses. More recently, television viewers will recognise him as the head of the British consulate, Sir Henry, in several episodes over several series of the ITV sitcom Benidorm. He also appears in more serious dramas, as well as from time to time playing the Dame in Pantomime. Michael also hosts a podcast in which he gets guests to nominate items to put in a time capsule. So I'm assuming, Michael, you've had plenty of time to think about what your seven wonders or your <laughs> items might be. Well, I suppose so. Yes, it's, there is a similarity to it. But, uh, you know, uh, there are similarities between all sorts of podcasts. And I'd, uh, it's, it's interesting. I really should have gone for the number seven. But I haven't, uh, because actually every time anybody says seven, even now after all these years, when I was a young boy at school, I was chosen as one of the goody-goody boys to go on a trip to the Yorkshire Dales with the bad boys. Uh, uh, they didn't realise, of course, that actually I was also one of the bad boys, but just good at hiding it. Uh, so I went with lots of my mates to the Yorkshire Dales. And when we were on the train, we went to the uh, the buffet, and one of my friends said, uh, how much are the packets of crisps, mate? And he said, uh, the seven pence. And he went, seven? Seven pence? And as with all these strange things, when you're a small teenage boy, it is the strangest thing that makes you laugh. And we became hysterical at the idea of his in indignant behaviour towards seven pence. And thereafter, whenever the word seven was said, we would all laugh. We would all go, seven? And laugh. And I although nobody ever understands it i still do it to this day if i hear the word seven i go seven well well i this is you should have made this one of your seven wonders but of course cunningly by starting with this you've you've kind of created an eighth wonder which happens <laughs> to be seven <laughs> indeed i'm sneaking them in i was struck by what you said there though because you said um you were sent away because you were one of the goodies or goody goodies uh, yes uh, but you were really a baddie underneath now that Quite often, the parts you play—I've seen you in dramas and Agatha Christie's and things—you, you, 
you, there is sometimes you are like the amiable vicar. Yes. But you can also very often be the amiable, vic- amiable vicar who turns out to be the murderer who was yes. pretty nasty underneath. So, I mean, obviously that's a tribute to your acting skills, but no, maybe there's just something you. about you uh, that's that good and bad. Well, I think that actually quite often, don't you think that the best villains are the people you don't suspect as being a villain? You don't yes. want to look at a villain yeah. on a television or anything. Well, some people do, but I don't want to watch a, a villain on the television who I immediately go, well, that man's a, he's a wrong one. There's yes. no doubt about it. Look at him twirling his moustache. Yeah. He's, he's bound to be a bad one. I've got him taped. But no, I like to be the person, you know, smile and smile and be a villain. I think it's it's much more fun. And, and in fact, I read a long time ago, uh, Humphrey Bogart always said that the uh, – was it Bogart or Bogart? Bogart, I think. Bogart, yeah. Yes, he, um, he, he said that the best villains he'd ever worked with, uh, Sidney Greenstreet and people like that, they were the most charming people in real life and, in fact, very kind and thoughtful and considerate. And when he asked why these people were able then to play such horrible, thoughtless, you know, vindictive people, he said it's because they understood how much it would hurt. And I think that's a, a brilliant way of looking at it, that actually if someone is basically not that pleasant, never cast them as a villain because they won't understand what it is they're doing. No. But having said that... Uh... And I mentioned you started on, uh, well, started, but you did um, radioactive and yes. you know with heebie-jeebies and things. Uh, the thing that was st- sticks in my mind because I, I was watching you even then uh, <laughs> on stage. You're the happiest looking person. You look as though you're really happy to be there. I mean, let's say take Angus Deaton. He he's a fun, very funny performer, but he doesn't always exude happiness. That's his not uh, his no. style. But you have a big beaming smile. <laughs> well, it's very funny you should say that because that absolutely. Absolutely ties with it, me in with the first thing I'm going to, to choose as my seven wonder, which is lovely. I, well, it's almost as if you knew what I was going to do. Well, <laughs> I, I'm going to I'm going to put in my dad's straw boater, which uh, for me is a symbol of how much he loved being on stage. My father was a solicitor, which I, I think you know. But um, I do know that I was I was puzzled therefore by the straw boater because I wondered if he was uh, did he go to Henley every year and supervise <laughs> rowing races? Was he in a in a barber shop quartet or something? Well, I think he would have loved to have been, but no, he he was a solicitor and was described by several people that I, I you know admire enormously. People like Lord Hutchinson and uh, the QC Victor Durand, who you may remember. Uh, I do. As, he was uh, very elderly by the time I was at the bar. Barrister yes, myself. I'm sure. But uh, but they were they were extraordinary barristers, and both of them described my dad to me as the best instructing solicitor that, that they'd had, the best in the country. They said, oh, and. Which is strange that he never instructed you, Clive. I didn't. <laughs> His judgment didn't fail him even at the end. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. No, but at the weekend, what he really wanted to do with his life, my father, that's what he did during the week. He defended criminals on murder charges and uh, bank robberies and things. And at the weekends, he would put on a, a pink jacket and a, a little neckerchief and put on a straw boater and bound onto almost any stage he could do. Now, these were usually school halls or village halls. He would bound on, put a foot up on a chair, and start impersonating Maurice Chevalier. And uh, for many years, he took me along with him. And that's how I started, really. That's how I got the bug for doing it. But he definitely taught me the joy of bounding on stage rather than the fear, which everybody always says, oh, I don't know how you do that, or I can't understand, oh, I could never do that. Whereas I love it. 
I really love it. If somebody says to me, get on stage, I'm I'm up. I run to it. No, I know. I've seen you do it. You were off your first there and you're smart. <laughs> you're, and, and that's a, I mean, it's a good technique because if you're enjoying yourself, you know, the audience can, can enjoy you enjoying yourself. No, that's, yes. that sounds wrong. But, you know. They, <laughs> <laughs> you're saying even if what I'm doing is rubbish. That's no, what you're saying. That, no, I mean, it's rubbish. But uh, uh, sometimes people are so awkward on stage, even if they're going to do a brilliant thing eventually it puts everybody off but not but but so with your father was he somebody who always wanted to be an actor or a singer or something and had been made to take a sensible job yes he tried he tried um so he came came from uh, his whole family were dockers southeast london dockers and he went to night school uh, after the war he wanted to join ensa during the war but he'd, he'd made the mistake of becoming a member of the dental corps so as he was in a profession as it were within the the um, army, he wasn't allowed to join ENSA. You had to really be of no use to join ENSA. So, so you're trying to say that dentists are more important, more useful, more vital than somebody <laughs> doing a Maurice Chevalier impression. <laughs> I know it sounds strange, doesn't it? <laughs> but actually, that's the way the army saw it. And um, so he wasn't allowed to do that. Then afterwards, he went to night school and studied, but at the same time, tried to become a, a, a comic, tried to be a stand-up comic. And he performed around clubs in London and at certain theatres. He even auditioned for um, he auditioned for the Windmill Club, but he didn't get into it, didn't get picked for it, uh, which I think my mother was very pleased because basically it was just comics standing up in between nude tableau shows, they called them, yeah. didn't they? Mm. Yes. Well, yes. well, I think it was a tough call, though, for the comedian because almost nobody in the audience was there to see you <laughs> or to hear your jokes. <laughs> no. It was just to cover some legal requirement that uh, had to be something else other than naked girls. I know. I'm going to give you a Barry Cryer story here, which uh, I think almost every podcast should have at least one. So, so this is that he said a comic was dying on stage and every joke went for nothing. And finally, after one very poor joke, somebody at the back did a very <laughs> like that. And he said sarcastically, thank you very much, sir. And the bloke said, no, I wasn't clapping. I was just slapping the sauce bottle. <laughs> 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 I, and, you, I, and you said it like Barry Cryer. Yeah. I think that, yeah. I think that was um, I think that was my dad's experience at the Windmill Club. But then he did audition at the BBC for, for jobs, and uh, I think he was on the list of people who auditioned for Sunday Night at the London Palladium, which uh, Barrett, which um, yeah, he didn't. So get. Wait, when you went into show business, which you mm. did from a relatively early age, was he pleased? Your father pleased, or or did he say no? Wait a minute, you should be st- or you have studied something more. You know, serious. Yes, well, of course, I had studied law, so uh, it was all set up for me to become a lawyer. And uh, with him, I think I was going to join his firm, but I wanted to be a barrister. And then I changed my mind and decided, no, I want to be an actor. So when I told him, I thought he would say, "But you know, you've got a good job here. You've spent all this time studying. I've given you all this money while you've been studying. What are you doing?" But he said, "Oh, great. Oh, you know, that'll be brilliant fun." Which is which is nice, I think. You know. So he so could I'm, enjoy enjoy your life uh, as a sort of an imagined one that he might have had had things gone slightly differently. Yes, yeah. he did very much. I remember doing a, uh, as you say, doing Radioactive. We did a, a tour of it around Britain. We were playing the Bromley Churchill Theatre, and uh, Angus came in and said, "Your dad's outside." And I said, "Oh, is he? Why didn't you bring him in?" He said, "Because he's walking up up and down the street, wearing a billboard with our poster on it." And I said, yeah, that would be my dad. And I went out and said, dad. And he said, yeah, yeah, no, I I thought I'd drum up some support, son. I said, yes, we're sold out. 
<laughs> so he was when very was, supportive. This, how, how long ago was that? Because you've been doing radioactive stage tours in recent years, haven't we? We have, yes, but that would have been in the mid eighties. So, oh, right. yes, so when we could do days. it, when we had the energy to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's something you've you've continued with because you basically do radio, you know episodes of the radio program but on stage yes we've done it in edinburgh a couple of times and we did a tour of it really the excuse is that we go off on tour so that we can all have lunch together which is the thing that we most enjoy doing it was the thing that uh, that jeffrey perkins was very good at insisting we did every year we all got together and had a radioactive lunch which was joyous and of course very drunken uh, and you know, and since Jeffrey died, we haven't really kept it up, and we should have done. We should have had a Jeffrey Perkins memorial lunch and got absolutely hammered in his honour. But there we are. Well, well, this is uh, you know, it's, it's good to honour him, as, mm. as you know, he's a very old friend of mine. But, but um, your father's straw boater you've included here, yes. and I do know what your wonders are, are going to be, and I noticed family crop up uh, more than once so yes apart from friends and lunches and being on stage obviously family <laughs> is important you this is an affectionate memory of your father and uh, through his straw boater it is indeed and family is very important to me when i was a young actor i went on tour with um, the great actor sir anthony quayle and he took me out to lunch one day and he told me very pointedly he said, my career has been quite extraordinary, Mike. And I said, yes, I know. Amazing films you've done, incredible. He said, I know, but before that, I was in the, uh, I was in the army, special services, and did some really quite horrible things, but, um, but extraordinary. And that's more important to me than, than acting. He said, but even more important to that, than that to me is my family. And it always will be and always has been. I would always put them ahead of anything that I do in the profession. And... I think he was basically giving me one of those lessons that young actors need to be given, which is, you know, don't let it be buggered up by being on tour, you know, which you saw all the time. You saw people all the time thinking, well, you know, what happens on tour doesn't matter. You mean misbehaving, yeah. Really misbehaving. Yes. And yes. quite getting astonishingly. To, getting to know their leading lady. Yes. Uh, as sort of more as than just acting with them. Yeah. I know. And and I said to him, you have no worries in that department. First of all, you know, I'm very much in love with my wife. I adore my children. And uh, also, my wife is fantastically astute. And if I even looked at another woman, even hundreds of miles apart, she'd instantly know. <laughs> <laughs> It's so fear, I, fear, fear is keeping you together. It's fear, absolute <laughs> terror. <laughs> we may, as I say, be coming back to family matters, but let's go on to your second wonder if we, we may. Yes, now this is food, I'm afraid, obviously, you know. Uh, well, when I worked on Benidorm, which was a brilliant programme to do because we basically lived in Spain for months and I had a gorgeous villa with a swimming pool and I was called for filming once every four or five days. And in between that, I would lounge around and just go out and have lovely lunches and places. And I went out one weekend. Now, I was it was quite an honour, actually, because I was asked by the Spanish crew if I would like to go and have lunch with them. Right. Which, um, you know, I mean, we did mix and everybody got on very well, but it was still very good of them to, you know, having spent a whole week putting up with people just speaking English. 
and they hardly ever spoke Spanish to each other because nobody understood it. Uh, they, you know, you'd think when they go at the weekend, they'd go away together and all rabbit away in Spanish. But they invited me, which meant they would then have to continue to struggle with English. Bless them. And I said, or you I, might I, have made a stab at Spanish. Who, who knows? See. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, really not. We, you know, typically for any Englishman, I'm useless at all languages. I mean, I can't. I, I, my wife recounts a story of us being in Greece for for many years, and and then eventually. Uh, telling me that every day when we walked to the village, her and the children would fall back slightly from me because they enjoyed me waving and saying hello to people as we went down the road and shouting squid. Uh, <laughs> so as you know, good morning in Greek is yeah. uh, Kalimera. And yeah. I was shouting, Kalimari, <laughs> Kalimari. So that's how good I am at languages. <laughs> and <laughs> Anyway, these very lovely men... Uh, said to me, mate, we go to uh, this, this best paella place in Spain, in Spain, is very good. And I said, okay, yeah, that'd be fantastic. So we got in the car uh, and we drove into the hills outside of Alicante and we went to this tiny little town and there was a very nondescript building and in it was a little skinny old lady standing over a fire which was made from the the dried twigs from the vines. So she had great bundles of these twigs, which burnt ferociously. And then these enormous paella dishes. And on it, she made two forms of paella. Because we were away from the sea, none of them had seafood in them. Oh, she, right. Yeah. I mean, apparently paella is made from the ingredients that are available. All so right. if you buy so the sea, it, you put prawns. So it doesn't fish have and, to have prawns and fish no, in it. So, yeah. No. So in fact, the first one was simply an asparagus paella which was dark green and you know you thought well this is going to be a bit boring but it was absolutely delicious it's astonishing and the second one was rabbit and snails and the snails now if there are any vegetarians listening don't because the, the snails basically as it's cooked the snails melt into the paella creating a sort of a gooey sauce and the rabbit then sits in it and oh my god Clive it's unbelievable and they were quite right it is the best paella I've ever eaten I can never imagine it being matched but it's also that thing of being honoured I think out of a group of of English actors I was chosen as a person they were willing to spend their their day off with all right so it was no, no nobody else then it's just you or yeah. did they recognize it I mean I'm not sure how Sounds like you weren't that busy, so maybe they recognise you as a bit of a bon viveur with time on his hands. And some of the, the more central cast pay. members were having to learn lots of lines and to be in rehearsal. You just had to come on and say a couple of uh, bon mots. And, uh, or, or it is true. It is true. But no, this would, would have been on the Sunday we went. And in fact, you quite often got uh, the Sunday off. And that meant that on a Saturday night in Benidorm, which is where we were staying, it's a bit wild. So people would go out and generally on a Saturday, people wouldn't get in until, well, certainly Sunday morning. And then they'd rest by the pool all day on a Sunday and be ready to go to work again on a Monday. So it, to go to this restaurant, I had to forego the pleasure of staying up all night and drinking, <laughs> which, as you know, I'm not very good at. According to tradition in Valencia, paella is cooked over an open fire, fueled by orange and pine branches, along with pine cones. Also, dining guests traditionally eat it directly out of the pan. The accurate extra fixings utilized in paella have for quite some time involved debate. 
However, what everyone concurs on is that every paella ought to have a fresh, caramelized bottom and subtle saffron season. Continuously served in the dish, this Spanish grate can be found everywhere in the nation in an unending number of blends. So let's go on to your third wonder, if we may, which is back to as well as back in the the family arena. Yes, it's my son. My son's first song. Now, my son is a composer and has his own music production company and is the producer of the podcast that I do, My Time Capsule. So he does most of the work on it. A talented know. guy, then. He is a talented I'm, I'm guy. I'm just saying that for the benefit of the producer on this one, that I recognise <laughs> where, where the talent just lies. But, keeping them on board, as it were. But, it's, yeah. but this is Dad taking him away from his great composition. He's got to tinker around with mere spoken word. <laughs> but anyway, it's true. So what, what was his first composition? That uh, Well, it was a surprise, really, for, for all of us. Now, my son had a very difficult teenage hood. I suppose you'd call it. Um, yes, he, he dropped out of school when he was 11, when he first went on to secondary school. He had a very tough time, got bullied rather badly, and became what they call school-phobic. So he, he really couldn't even face going to the building. He became completely panic-stricken. And it was really an awful time. And we had to start teaching him at home, so he was homeschooled. Uh, he became rather, you know... It's difficult for a teenage boy to realise that he's dropped out of the society that everybody else is involved in. And there are a, a surprising number of children in this situation, we find out now, having gone through it. So we couldn't really fathom it. We couldn't understand it. We got hardly any help from any uh, sort of government department or from anybody from the council or anything. We were sort of left alone with him. So we did our best, uh, but it was it was difficult. So one of the things we sort of did was if he found that he had a passion for anything, we would encourage it. We would encourage it immediately. So he he started to learn guitar and we bought him, you know, expensive guitar and we encouraged him all the time. We we said, Do you want lessons? Do you want lessons with somebody? He 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 said, No, no, I'm quite happy to just learn it. So that was a, a comfort to him to sit and play the guitar. And then he said, Could I could you get me a, a four track studio? Now, at the time, this was simply a, a little cassette thing that you could, where on a cassette, a tape cassette, you could split it into four tracks and record four tracks worth of music onto it. Uh, and if you were clever, you could, for example, record four tracks or record three tracks and then bounce them onto the first track, which means that you still had three tracks available. You could do two tracks and bounce onto the second track. So you could do quite a lot of tracks onto this tape and make quite complicated music if you knew what you were doing. We bought him this thing. He read the manual, and then he said, I'm, I'm going to go upstairs and see if I can write something. We went, oh, okay, all right. And about three hours later, he came down and said, what do you think of this? And he played us this song, which to this day, whenever I hear it, makes me makes me cry, because it was it was so complicated and so perfect and such a lovely little pop song, which... Also, he'd sung himself. Now, we were com completely unaware at this point that he could even sing. Right. We'd never heard him sing. Our daughter sang all the time. Yeah. But he, we didn't know. So and what, age, what, what age was he when, when this happened? So he was about 13, 13, 14. Yeah. Um, he'd, he'd also, which another thing that makes it uh, memorable to me, is that he'd taken the answer phone message from my daughter's phone 
so she was about 16, 17 at the time, and he'd taken the answer message, which is her saying, hello, Hannah here, um, sorry, I can't talk to you at the moment, if you leave a message, I will call you back, bye, and uh, I'd taken that and put it at the start of the song, and the song was about a person waiting for a girl to notice him, uh, and and it's really sweet and lovely, he sort of poo-poos it now, but I still find it an extraordinary moving song to hear, because I know that suddenly there was this obviously this latent talent that the he talent had. was there and was well, for singing for composing yeah. for the played technical all the side of yeah, he played yeah. everything on it he did all yeah. the harmonies mm. uh, it, and it within about 3 hours he'd put together this song and played it to us as if we were going to go well it's all right john you know it's not just you know it's hardly bross is it you know but he <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, so absolutely, I would take that song with me everywhere. It would, um, you know, it, it's a it's a wonderful thing to know. And it was a moment where I realised that my son was not me as well. My son was not, I am definitely not the sort of person who would ever be able to do something like that. If I can do something instinctively or naturally, uh, then I do, I'm fine. But if it involves any work or certainly reading a manual... <laughs> Then I, I forget it. I can't do it. But this is the this obviously is the way forward. I mean, things have got more and more technical. But but people now do record, compose, record things in their in their bedroom on their computer on absolutely their, uh, with more than four tracks with all, all sorts of things they can. Oh do yes, that. now he's got a bank of computers and you know uses all these different things and can do the most extraordinary things with ease. I mean, uh, my podcast just been sponsored and we had we were sponsored by the the film The Father. And so we had to record a little sort of, we've been sponsored by this film sort of thing. So having done uh, quite a lot of, <laughs> of adverts in my time, particularly yes. radio adverts, I said, well, I can write a radio advert. They're easy. So I wrote a little radio advert and we performed it together. So if you listen to our podcast, you, the thing you should listen for is a little promotion <laughs> at the beginning, which involves me and my son acting together. And of course, annoyingly, He's much more subtle and much funnier than I am. Well, I don't know about that, but that's a fantastic uh, <laughs> plug for a podcast. Listen to it for the advert. Yeah. <laughs> but you say he was not you and he's got uh, talents beyond yours. But of course, as you mentioned, you've done adverts. And of course, you've also sung a num number one uh, <laughs> I know. chart topping records. The <laughs> <laughs> well, you say sung. <laughs> well, well, uh, well, I'm thinking in the first instance of the chicken song. Yes. Uh, with the spitting image, which was supposed to be a parody or of ghastly pop songs, but turned out to be as successful as any <laughs> or, other. Or more, more successful, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Not, you know, I mean, yes, it was absolutely a, a parody of uh, Black Lace and Agadoo, that sort of thing, you know, where it was a nonsensical song, one of those holiday hits, and we did it as a track on Spitting Image. And it was written by our mutual friend, Philip Pope, and also by um, uh, Doug Nane and Rob Grant, who write Red Dwarf. They wrote the lyrics. And, uh, you know, as one of the singers on Spitting Image, we all turned up at the studio and we had sort of four or five songs to record for the next you know, batch of shows that were being so, made. So they wanted something that sounded like an awful pop record, yeah. a really, you know, almost talentless and worthless kind of thing. <laughs> and they turned to you. Immediately. <laughs> as, as the singer. <laughs> Immediately. There's no yeah. doubt about it. That's why I was there, because I could sound, I think we had amazing singers on that show, people who could do extraordinary things, people like Lance Ellington, who was one of the singers on Strictly Come Dancing, even still. He's, and he sang, 
famously, he sang, uh, Gillette, the best a man can get. I'd say he made a fortune doing that. Yes. Are you allowed to put that on? Maybe not. I think so. I don't, I'm not Why sure. Not? I'm sure they'd be delighted. You know. yes. yes, but not with me singing it. Uh, but anyway, yes, whenever it came to we want someone to sound normal or, or you know, like a bloke who's just singing a song in the pub, <laughs> I was the one. So all the football songs we did, yeah, Mike, yeah. you sing that. And all the, oh, this bloke's a, sort of a nerd. He's, he's uh, oh, hang on a minute, we've got a singing condom. Mike, why don't you have a go at it? Oh, I, can't, I don't remember the singing condom, but I'm, I'm, I'm picturing you as a singing condom now. <laughs> I think that was off the Beatles album, Rubber Soul. <laughs> I think it was, yes. Well, and while we're de- dealing with your, your hits. It was one of those records uh, I had a protective sleeve, I know that much. <laughs> The uh, while we're dealing with your uh, big hits, uh, of course, within Radioactive, there were the the heebie-jeebies, and indeed yes. other bands. That, so that was a parody of the Bee Gees, fine band. I would never say a word against them, uh, no. but but that was that's that was three of you: you, Angus Deaton, and uh, Philip Pope, who does have a fantastic voice and a yes. capacity. I mean, for as singing. we know, Clive, it was really. Uh, Philip Pope and Angus <laughs> nah, but you all look good on stage. Well, it's you, true, you still yes. do. I've seen you doing it recently. You've aged gracefully with with. But the we beaches. hung on to his we hung on to his coattails and went for a fantastic ride. We had a brilliant time, I have to say, because we did it as a song in a show in Edinburgh when we were students, and people immediately came up to us and said, "You want to release it as a single?" And we went, "Yeah, all right, why not?" And then they said, "Actually, why don't you make an album? Can you do anybody else?" And it was only at that point that Philip said. I don't know, I can sound a bit like uh, Peter Gabriel. I can do Sting. I could probably and, – and suddenly this list of people that he could sing. He can do like. anybody. Can't he can he? do He's anybody. fantastic, yeah. And, and so, uh, you know – You did Status Quo, didn't you? That we was did. Another, Very what, good yeah. fun. <laughs> yes, a, sh- a song that kept me fit for many for many years, performing it on stage, just the jumping about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was – we had a wonderful time. We went all over the world. We went everywhere in the world and performed all over the place and I did some extraordinary shows. Uh, in different countries would fly off and do these things, met amazing people as a result of it, and were quite often treated as if we were pop stars, when in fact we weren't at all. You sort of, it's, when you're a parody of a pop star, it's quite, you are a pop star, because where is parody <laughs> end? But so that was the heebie-jeebies, and you did meaningless songs in very high voices. Yes. Um, which I think Richard Curtis, the famously amiable writer, uh, mm. wrote. So that was quite a... Savage thing for him. Yes, to Richard wrote quite a lot of it. Actually, he wrote a lot of the lyrics. So um, yes, it was it was an amazing time. It was uh, I, I, you know I mean we looking at my career and my life to have the fortune of sort of be, basically falling into that company of people to fall in with Angus. Angus auditioned me. I was going up to Edinburgh to do straight plays. I was going to be a proper actor. And Angus said, "They somebody said Do you want to audition for the review." I said, "Yeah, yeah, sure. What what is a review?" And they said, you know, it's like sketches like Monty Python. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. I can do different voices. And then Angus said, can you um, can you sing? And I said, I can, yeah. He said, well, sing something. So I sang I Left My Heart in San Francisco. And he said, very good, nice voice. Um, he said, can you now sing it and be funny? And so I said, uh, yeah, I think so. I left my heart. <laughs> 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 and I got and in. on that moment, and on that moment, your 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 my career acting turned. career was destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've still got your acting career, but you've had that, as you say, the opportunity to travel the world. I think you went to Australia doing uh, heebie-jeebies and and radio yes, we did, yes, like several that. times. 
Um, now, I've had, I am once annoyed the, the, the Bee Gees, so they've, they've obviously got a sense of humor sometimes, maybe not always. Mm. Did you ever bump into the, uh, the, the actual Bee Gees when you were doing the heebie-jeebies? I didn't, but Philip did meet Morris. And, uh, and he said, apparently very quietly, I think it's quite funny. <laughs> but I think it's because he didn't want Barry to hear. No. Who <laughs> <laughs> took everything a little bit more seriously. Well, which was nice. My but, but actually, show, the Bee um, oh, yeah. sorry, the Bee Gees did try to sue us. So, um, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's probably a bit harsh on them. I know for that period of time, some of their songs, but they have written some quite meaningful songs, I suppose. Wonderful songs. Uh, I mean, yes. I often think that yeah. when you do parody of people, it's because you admire them. You, yes. You, you understand the details of it uh, because you've listened to it so carefully. All right. Well, well, uh, well we, we went a long way there from your, your well, if I may say, so rather touching recollection of your son's first composition. He's gone on to uh, do you know further and greater work, but that's the one, that, that's the moment for you. Yeah, I mean, he probably is fed up with you talking about that. First <laughs> probably. I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm sure he is. I'm sure he's one of the people who will not be listening to this and go, oh, not again, Dad. You tell everybody at every dinner party we ever go to, you try and find it on the I mean, iPod. <laughs> Nobody listens to an iPod anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't matter. Being a father doesn't make any difference. All your stories are ones your children have heard yes, dozens indeed. of times before. <laughs> don't want to hear them again. Now, that's great, but at a time when the music business is crying out for new talent to bring life back to a flagging industry, the sheer expense of trying out their sound in the professional way is a real barrier to many newcomers. One answer could now be fitted inside here. It's a Self-contained recording studio designed to give the enthusiast access to some of the basic features of the real thing, but in a manageable miniature package. Some big studios these days handle as many as 40 separate tracks. This studio in miniature offers just four. It records onto a conventional cassette of tape, but it runs at twice the normal speed and is fed by a signal through a professional background noise reduction system. In other words, it's designed to get the best possible results out of a system as small as this one. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Join me. Jaguar, the host of BBC Introducing Dance on Radio 1 for my brand new podcast, Utopia Talks. It's a reactive platform to discuss issues that my generation care about in dance music culture and the wider world. 
I'll be talking to some of the biggest names in dance music, including people like Heidi. The lineups do not need to be 99% male-driven. Mm. There's all these interesting new producers and women that are coming through, you know, all sorts. Yeah. It's like women are speaking out now. And the sensational Bless Madonna. I feel like literally my entire life has led up to this. This is the first event we've had like this, not just in the UK, but really in the Western Hemisphere. And to be able to be here with all of these people who are so happy is just absolutely the biggest, highest joy of my life. As well as having the meaty conversations I often have with friends that I'd love you to join in with. There's so much new energy coming out of the pandemic and there's so many like new nights and festivals yeah, yeah. and everyone's really pushing for this new structure where people genuinely don't feel anxious mm -hmm. about coming to a club night because of the way they look or the way they dress. It's more about everyone in. To me, Utopia is a perfect moment. It's togetherness. It's the future. I want to live in a more inclusive, equal world and I hope this podcast will build a community and help create change. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Wednesday. Welcome to Utopia Talks. Utopia Talks is a stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. While we're in the musical uh, arena or area, uh, let's go on to your fourth uh, wonder of the world. Yes, this is a sort of a more general thing, not to do with family. But uh, when I was a student, I didn't really listen to classical music ever when I was younger. I didn't understand it at all, I think. And then I'm, I did a play with a director called Robin Hodgkinson. And we did uh, Alice in Wonderland, which was very good fun open air production in a garden production at Oxford. Were and you playing I, the Cheshire Cat by any chance? No, I wasn't. No, I, I played the Mock Turtle, which was very oh, good right. fun. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we did this production, had a wonderful time, but we became very good friends. And I would go around to his place and he would say, have you heard this? And he would play me classical music. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I became an enormous fan of, of the the beauty of it, really. One of the pieces of music he played me, which I was completely amazed by, was Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. concerto. And it was played by uh, Vladimir Horowitz, who I think possibly is regarded as the greatest concert pianist of all time. Mm. I think many people would say that's yeah. true. Uh, he was an, a virtuoso, extraordinary performer. And then, because I just sat there and, and tears and listening to this amazing piece of music and this astonishing piano playing. Uh, Robin said, oh, I've got another record of his. Actually, what it is is a collection of his encores. He was famous, Vladimir Horowitz, for the encores he did after his concert. So he'd play these amazing pieces of music and then he'd come out and play a little sort of two, three-minute piece as a showing off his virtuosity. Yes. And one of the pieces that he played was Stars and Stripes Forever. You know that? That, which seems a very simple thing to play. And it's a march, it went, isn't it? It's a, it it's a, a march, patriotic yes. march for American troops to... Yeah, written by John Philip Sousa. Yes. Uh, so really a marching band song. 
And as a result, a piece of music that surprisingly has lots of parts to it. You don't really notice when you're first listening to it as a band that it has lots of things going on in it. When you listen to somebody play it on the piano, you become aware of it. So if I can describe what I heard at this time, Robin said to me, listen to this and tell me how many people are playing. I said, okay. And you listen to it. He plays the first thing, which is just the, the, the very sweet theme of da da bum bum ba da ba ba and then that finishes and then there's another thing that comes in which is normally played by the band by the band's piccolo which is that plays in the background so he plays that theme and then he plays that with the other theme and then there's a third theme that comes in which he then plays as well and then he plays it has that Astonishing moment where it goes and it builds up to this amazing sort of moment. And at that point, I defy anybody to tell me there were not two pianists playing this piece of music. You could not, no matter how many times I've listened to it, I can't work out how he could possibly play four themes, all of them incredibly complicated and fast-moving at the same time with two pairs of hands, well, two hands. And ha- well, well, two hands, yeah, but, yeah. but uh, how does he do it? I, I've, I've um, you know, look, looked at this or listened to this in preparation for talking to you, and people often say, ooh, Horowitz obviously got three arms or yeah. three hands. Um, yeah. Maybe you're saying he actually needs four, but but uh, either way, there aren't enough fingers uh, <laughs> no. available to play all the notes no. while going on. I would say to anybody, look it up, get it on Spotify or something. It's unbelievable. And he did it on a number of different occasions. So Yes, it was one of his famous pieces, you know, so I mean, but it's still astonishing. And and he was playing it uh, right up into his 80s, you know, so he was an amazing player. There was a fantastic story that I read on the back of that album when we had it, which has stuck with me all the time, which is that... um, because he was famous for playing Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, which is everybody regards as possibly one of the most complicated uh, piano pieces to play, one of the most difficult. Uh, he was invited by Rachmaninoff to go and have lunch with him. So they went and had lunch. And while they were having lunch, he said, well, tell me, how, how do you approach the piece? And Horowitz said, well, I, I don't mean to offend, but actually I think that that chord uh, is better if you add that note and you put that in. And he was talking about the improvements he'd made to the piece of music. And in fact, the embellishments he put on this incredibly complicated piece of music. And Rachmaninoff was so intrigued by this. He said, well, show me, show me, come with me. And they got into a cab and went to the Steinway Theatre, which I think is in New York. Yes. And he then walked in and said, I need two concert pianos, two concert pianos on the stage, please. And of course, it's Rachmaninoff. So they did. Rachmaninoff played the orchestral part to the piece. and. Uh, and Horowitz played the piano part, and they played it all the way through uh, without any comment. And at the end of it, Horowitz, apparently, in retelling this story, said that he thought he'd offended Rachmaninoff because his head went down uh, for quite a while. And then he stood up, and he was crying, and he walked round to Horowitz and hugged him. And, uh, and uh, you know, as a sort of a, an 18-year-old boy falling in love with this uh, this astonishing talent it, it, that it was just a most moving story that one great person you know uh, should admire somebody so much 
Well, from the sublime uh, Vladimir Horowitz, your yes. next wonder, uh, I'll <laughs> tell you, uh, is karaoke, which is uh, oh. musically, I suppose, the ridiculous in, in some respects. But why on earth have you chosen karaoke? I love karaoke. Have you ever done it, Clive? I have, but not very often and no. not very well. And I can see it's fun. You know, it's it's a laugh. Uh, if you've had a few drinks, you're with some mates, the songs are familiar and you realise that you're coming in too early or you're hitting the wrong <laughs> note. And, but it, it's not. <laughs> to describe it as a wonder, though, I think it was... <laughs> it is a wonder. It is a, what's a wonder about it, and I will tell you why I adore it, is not because I can sing and therefore it gives me an opportunity to stand up and sing, although I do love doing that. Undoubtedly, I'm an actor and I am a show-off. So I like doing that. But... The real joy I've got from karaoke is watching other people do it. Uh, having spent a lot of time in Benidorm, well, actually before that, and again, this is, this, is, this is tied to my son. We went as a family in my car. We drove down to Portugal to see the Euros in 2004, which were done in Portugal. We had a fantastic time. But on the way, we stopped for a night in Biritz, and we went out on the town uh, as a family, by then, my my children were student were sort of you know, student age. They were old enough to go into bars. We went into a bar, and it was a karaoke bar. And I said, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to sing a song. I don't care. Come on, put your name down." And my daughter also, who's a very good singer, I said, "Kind come on, sing, sing." My wife said, "I've no way I'm singing." And I said, "Oh, well, never mind." And so my daughter and I put our names on this piece of paper, and you know the song we were going to sing, and I stood up and showed off and then my daughter stood up and sang very well and people applauded and then the person said and the next person is Jean and we turned and looked at our son and we didn't even notice that he put a piece of paper into the hat as it were and we looked at him again what you know I mean I knew he could do this I knew he was a musician and I as I say with that record I knew then he could sing but he was so undemonstrative and so sort of private and quiet and in fact shy that we never expected he would do this so we all thought hello what's going on here and he walked out got hold of the microphone and the track started and it was sitting on the dock of a bay sitting on the dock of the bay yeah yeah and and he launched into this astonishing performance of sitting on the dock of the bay. And is that a, is that a karaoke favourite? Not really. I mean, that's, that's quite Not a, really, is it? It's quite a subtle song for a, yeah. for a drunken... Uh, I mean, you obviously did the chicken and it's song a, or it's something. It's a very of... difficult song to sing. It's yes. a really difficult song. Yeah. And he sang it extremely well with all the high notes and the whistling. And it was just great. Uh, and, you know, so I was able to turn to my wife and say, see, karaoke is brilliant. Uh, and then, of course, I got the job in Benidorm, which is full of karaoke bars. And as I've told you, I had lots of free days. Now, my favourite bar was <laughs> <laughs> was. And I'm going to, I hadn't realised that Benidorm was such an important part. Of your well, life. I had such fun. <laughs> yeah. I had such fun there, you know. And uh, I I went into this bar where all the windows are blacked out, Clive. Yes. So that they don't know what time of day it is. Fair enough. And if you sang a song, you got given a free shot. So it was completely full of very, very <laughs> drunken people who were not aware that it was half past nine in the morning. No. And who but they were wait. aware you got a free shot. They were just sitting and waiting, this is waiting a, this for is, the next shot. 
That is a recipe for economic disaster for a bar <laughs> where British people are on holiday. It was you get free hopeless. alcohol as long as you sing along to some record that happens to be on the machine. I did get talking at this bar to a fellow who was sitting there. He said, are you going to sing? And I said, no, no, I'm just I'm just watching. He went, is, what, what day is it? I said, Thursday. He said, no, what what day, week? When, when's it? And I said, well, it's Thursday the... 14th or something he said oh shit I missed my flight again <laughs> <laughs> and I saw a man <laughs> attempt to sing That's Life by Frank Sinatra yes where the only words you could possibly understand was every now and again when that moment came along yeah he would go I, I was it's oh that's live. <laughs> I have it on my phone, and every now and again, watch it, and it makes me cry with laughter. Oh my god! Thank you very much. I like to dedicate this to a very special lady who, over the last few weeks, has made me feel like a very special man. So karaoke, you've put it. So now we're on to the sixth one, which is a this. This is a different category of one. This is almost like a, a wonder of the ancient world you've put on this. Yes, indeed. I thought I ought to put in something that really is a wonder, and it's the uh, Pentaifan burial chamber in Pembrokeshire. I don't know if you've ever seen it or seen well, photographs of it. I've seen photographs of it. I've been making programs about uh, archaeological sites the last couple of winters so i have seen things like this but uh, i thought oh this is a good one if we do another series we must must go there but you you describe it it's it's a it's a dolman isn't it it's a it is um, a dolman yes uh, but so in fact what it is it, there are sort of there are sort of seven stones standing but the, there are four stones that are that are the center of it and they are three stones standing upright and on top of it an absolutely huge sort of capstone uh, on top now they believe one theory is and it's quite a good theory that these were burial chambers and that in order to get the stone up onto the top this huge stone now and we're talking about a stone that's sort of five or six meters long and you know two and a half meters wide and quite it, it, sort of 16 17 stone of tons of, of stone uh, and would take hundreds of people to lift on top of this thing uh, they think that what they did was they built this mound of stones and then moved this huge stone up a long slope of, of smaller stones to this point, and then put the, the other stones that had been put in place there, and then they removed the small stones, and the large stone would lower itself down onto the three standing stones. But when you look at it, the, the thing is standing on, it's resting on tiny points of these three below them. And that's where they think the burial chamber was. Or in fact, that it was in fact just a monument, that it was built to show, look how important I am, and this is my land sort of thing. Or maybe a it had religious significance, because it's right by the uh, Priscilla Hills, which is where the, the stone for Stonehenge came from. 
And again, now they've got theories about that now, which are that in fact it was already a monument uh, for somebody who who ha- who was in charge in that area, and then for some reason he and his tribe almost like inherited the area around Stonehenge. So, being very you know important and powerful, if you move everybody, you say right, come on, everyone, we're going to Wiltshire. It's it's much easier to farm. It's much nicer land. It's the weather's much nicer. Come on, everyone. Oh, by the way, can you bring that thing with us? And so there's a possibility that Stonehenge was already there in Wales, and then they just picked it up and took it to Wiltshire and put it up again. Yeah, I think they've actually found a site where they've got evidence that this is where certainly a ring of of Stonehenge would have been erected first. Right. And not just hewn out of the ground and taken straight to to Wiltshire Plain. No. So yeah, but um, I think this is so the one you're talking about. Why, why that one in particular? Because there are lots of these, several in Wales, several in England, Scotland, you know, Brittany. Because I think when you go to it, it really takes you by surprise. It's, there's no fuss made about it. You go, there's a little track that runs that runs through the Preseli Hills, and uh, it you can see down to the coast, which is uh, sort of Newport that area. And uh, and I went there on a very beautiful sunny day uh, with Griff. I went to say with Griff Reese Jones, who owns a place near there. And we were walk- going for a walk, and he said, "Oh, come, let's go and look at this burial chamber. I've been here quite a number of years. I've never been to see it." So we walked down this little pathway, and then suddenly you're confronted by these stones standing there, and it's astonishing. And then you read the stuff, and it says, "You know, it's." It was built in, they think, about 3,500 BC, which is just an incredible time away. That I mean, all right, admittedly, in Egypt, people were building the pyramids. But for these simple people to, to build this astonishing thing and for it to be have been there and stood there and to look so fragile, it's such huge, they're such huge rocks. And yet when... You look at it, you think, well, that's, I, I don't want to touch it. It'll fall over. It almost feels like that. Yeah, it looks very elegant in its uh, in the photographs. And, mm. and with all these structures, as you say, with these huge rocks or great structures, you can't work out where, how they had the man hours, the person hours yes. to devote, to move it, whatever, whatever impetus, whether it is for a burial site or to impose order or whatever it is. But you think, I must have spent a lot of time just getting enough to eat. How did they afford the time to build something like that? Yes, uh, getting enough to eat and then also fighting everybody else off, saying, you know, keep away from our land. You, know, you look and you can see uh, near where we were staying there, we also went up to a, a, you know, a small hill which had, you could see the original wall that was built around it. Again, this is sort of Neolithic, this, this wall, and it's still there. But there's another hill you can sort of, without raising your voice, you can talk to people standing on it. And that was apparently a different tribe. They were on that hill. And they were the lesser tribe because it's slightly lower down. But they also had their fort. So they would spend all day just looking at each other going, don't you dare, don't you, don't you dare. <laughs> the Neolithic tomb is of portal dolmen type with the front of the chamber composed of three large uprights. The burial chamber was once partially covered by dirt and rocks. It extended 120 feet to the rear. This megalithic structure was erected in 3500 BC is the estimated date. That's insane. That is absolutely just crazy. The rock that's on the top there is three tons. How in that day and age would they be able to erect this? That's just the manpower, the strength that I mean, how? Thank you.
so that was your sixth wonder. So in the natural order of things, you're, the next one is your seventh and last. So uh, are we going for a yes. big finish? Last and most important, most important to me, without a doubt. Uh, and almost certainly I'm only doing this as one-upmanship on you, which is that it, it's my grandchildren, uh, which are the great wonder of the world to me. And, uh, and the, the, the depth of my love for them uh, takes me by surprise constantly. It's an extraordinary thing. I mean, I really love my children, but I, I never imagined that I could love anybody any more than I love them. But I suspect that I, I even love my grandchildren more. They can do no wrong in my eyes. Well, let's not get distinguished between your love between your children no, and your indeed, grandchildren. Sure, that, seems, that seems to be undermining yeah. your family. If I stop loving my children, I don't love my children anymore. I, I haven't got enough love for them anymore. <laughs> so how many how many grandchildren have you got? You always one upmanship because I, I, I haven't got any grandchildren. I've got not children, yet. but no grandchildren. But, but um, how many grandchildren have you gone for? Uh, well, I have four grandchildren, and I, I suspect that may be it, sadly. But, uh, yes, I, my daughter has uh, a boy and a girl, Natty, Nathaniel, and Edie. And my son, John, has two boys, Freddie and Leon. So they go from the age of four up to nine. And they are quite wonderful. What's I would say, the, if I'm going to be serious about it, the thing that I find astonishing about it, and I've found astonishing about all life, I think, is that from me my children come and then from them with their personalities and their the way they look at the world and who they are which is quite distinct from me and i remember saying to you that that i remember noticing that in my son possibly for the first time when he was a teenager and that's a bit slow of me i think but my grandchildren are all so distinct from each other as characters as personalities they have their their own ways about them and each one of them is is delightful in their own way but they're just so different from each other and you can't work out how from the same source with the same gene pool something quite so distinct develops and is it slightly less worrying to be a grandpa grandfather than it was to be a father because i'm, I'm just thinking when children are babies there and then they start growing up there are so many dangers in the world that I'm always surprised any of us make it to, <laughs> to our grown-up stage. You you know, know, whether I, was, I was never particularly worried about my children. I always assumed that everything would be all right. But then I suppose I was younger and had, you know, just thought that everything would be all right anyway. You know, I've always sort of had that attitude. Oh, it'll be all right. And, uh, and I never had any great worries for my children. Apart from, you know, then you're suddenly confronted with things like my son didn't want to go to school. And, and you think, this isn't supposed to happen. Everything's been so smooth up to this point, uh, you know. Or then later on, your children. We never had any major illness, thank God. Uh, and then suddenly, my grandchildren come along, and and I do worry about them all the time. I'm really concerned about them. I wait, they're the thing that I that make me jump aw awake at night. Oh no, when I've you know in a dream something has happened to them, and and it terrifies me. I, I you know so. Yes, but and my grandson Natty has uh, autism, and so his life is more difficult than other people's, but but quite wonderful as a result of it. The thing that comes out of that autism is 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 extraordinary. I love his 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 con the way he can concentrate on details, the way he's fascinated by something to the point of of almost never becoming bored with it, and will will go into such. We'll spend so long working on something if he's fascinated by it. 
it's a, it's a, it's almost a gift. You know? So um, these things that can look like uh, they're a curse quite often turn out not to be. You know, and then the humour of of them, the the them slowly learning that that you know that I'm an idiot. I'd, I'd really enjoy that thing. Uh, during lockdown, when we occasionally would go for walks with them because you could see people outside. So we would take them and then it was all legal and what have you. Uh, we would go for a walk with one set of grandchildren or the other set. And the the different experiences we had doing those was quite, it's quite shocking. But actually the one thing that was common to it was that I got into the habit of every time we do we did it of, uh, of taking sweets and hiding them somewhere about my person uh, and very quickly my wife said you, she said to me just once I think you're obsessed you're obsessed with getting them sweets what's going on and they heard me say this and then of course every time I turned up I would be searched from you know top to bottom and they would find these sweets and they go granddad you're obsessed you're obsessed <laughs> as if it, I wasn't getting them for them I was getting them because I'd hidden them for myself so I played that game all the way through and uh, and now still they, if ever sweets are mentioned, they say, don't tell Grandad. He's obsessed with it. You know, I can still remember the very first sweets given to me by my grandfather. They were Werther's original, and I was poor. I had a bit of trouble opening that shiny golden wrapper, but then, well, I'll never forget that first taste. Sweet and creamy and uncommonly good. I remember feeling I must be someone very special when my granddad gave me his wonderful butter candy. Well, now I'm the granddad. And what else would I give my little grandson but my Werther's original? After all, he's someone very special too, you know. Um, we've, I think, I could. You're the sort of person who just asked one question. You can get 19 stories on, on each one. So I think seven wonders is pushing it a bit. We could have done it with just a couple of wonders and, uh, and got the whole thing done. But anyway, thank you very much, uh, uh, Mike, or Michael Fenton-Stevens, um, distinguished actor, comedian, singer, all those things. Thank you for sharing your seven wonders uh, with us. I have to choose the wonder of wonders uh, from your list of seven, the one which should have really hit home with me. Yeah. And I, I was... You know, in advance, I have a sort of an idea what I might choose. But in fact, uh, the thing that I think has encapsulated everything that you've been talking about, it was the one of your son's first composition. I think that captures a bit of the performance, but obviously is also the the you know the difficulties you sometimes have with parenting, but the overall joy of uh, of family life, which uh, comes through virtually everything, apart from a pile of stones in Wales. Everything else has been entirely focused on the the jolly things of life, eating, drinking, and being with friends and family. So I think It's that- true, and I do remember even when we were at that paella restaurant, I rang my wife to say, oh, my God, you'd love this. Yes. Yeah. And she said, why are you, why are you said, phoning you me at bastard. midnight? <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> Mike, thanks. Thank you, Mike. Michael Fenton-Stevens, thank you very much for sharing your seven wonders. My pleasure. My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. 
It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.